Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, September 1st. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. We're so happy to have you with us tonight. In our top story, we'll take a look at the political races to keep an eye on ahead of the November elections. Caitlin McCuskey from Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America will help us analyze the races and candidates. The Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn movement is allowing towns, cities, and counties to declare themselves safe spaces for the unborn. Movement founder Mark Lee Dixon visited our office and Teresa sat down with him to talk about his successes and challenges. In Abortion in the News, Leslie will tell you about five pro-lifers facing more than a decade in prison after being found guilty of violating the FACE Act and the health challenge for House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise. In political news in a nutshell, Teresa will give you the latest on the legal woes of former President Donald Trump and how a trial might impact the primaries. National Pro-Life T-Shirt Day is October 3rd. Priest for Life's Brian Kemper came up with the idea decades ago and brought it back to the national scene. He'll join us for our final segment and we'll let you know how to order shirts, including the ones Leslie and I are wearing and on our mannequin. <laughs> Please stay tuned. We've been reporting for months about the very important ballot initiative Ohioans will vote on in the November elections, but there are several other races whose outcomes will impact the unborn and pro-life efforts to protect them. Louisiana has the only Democrat governor who is pro-life, but term limits will keep John Bell Edwards from seeking another term. Republican Attorney General Jeff Landry has declared his candidacy and several other Republicans are hoping to keep Louisiana deep red. Mississippi and Kentucky also will be choosing governors, either re-electing incumbents or selecting a new leader. In Virginia, all 40 seats in the Senate and 100 seats in the House of Delegates are up for election this year. Democrats currently hold a narrow majority in the Senate while Republicans narrowly control the House. Four House seats are currently vacant. The party that wins control of the two houses will be key to determining the success of Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's agenda, including his plans to introduce a law protecting babies from abortion at 15 weeks. A seat on the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania is up for grabs, pitting a pro-abortion Democrat against a Republican who's promised to defend all life under the law. It's the Supreme Court that has the final word on state-level abortion laws. To help us analyze these critical races, we've invited Caitlin McCuskey, pro-life coordinator for Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America, to join us. Welcome to the show, Caitlin. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on. So, Caitlin, let's start with the governor's races. Louisiana has a primary on October 14th. What do you see happening there and in the general election? Yeah, well, there's a lot of candidates running in the governor's race. Um, it certainly looks like uh, Attorney General Jeff Landry has a um, advantage in this race. He's well known. He's got a lot of financial support, but there are a number of candidates running and um, we expect to see of the 16 candidates, you know, two of them advance. It's a jungle primary in October. The top two vote getters will advance. Um, that could be two Republicans. It could be a Republican. And um, the Democratic Party has endorsed um, a, a man named Sean Wilson. Um, but we're certainly excited about the prospect of not just a pro-life governor like John Bell Edwards um, has said he is, but someone who's willing to lead on the issue in the state of Louisiana, someone who is willing to go out and advocate for this issue, advocate for women and for the unborn um, and use his platform to uh, encourage 
adoption reform to encourage foster care, but also to encourage uh, women to choose life and to help build that culture of life from the governor's mansion. Well, Caitlin, in Mississippi, Republican incumbent Governor Tate Reeves is seeking re-election to a second term, likely facing off against Democrat Brandon Presley, who's a cousin of Elvis Presley. Do you see any chance for Presley to unseat Reeves? And would a Democrat governor have much of an impact in red Mississippi? Well, Governor Reeves has been fantastic, especially on the life issue. He, um, along with Attorney General Lynn Fitch, who's also up for re-election this year, um, have just been a dynamic duo um, from arguing the Dobbs case to uh, protecting and serving women after um, Dobbs overturned Roe, uh, passing uh, laws that save lives as well as providing resources to women. They've just been fantastic. It's definitely a, a race to watch and a race to be involved in. We've got to do all that we can to support Governor Reeves. And we look forward here at SBA Pro-Life America to helping both of them successfully win re-election. Um, and as I mentioned, Lynn Fitch, I should also go back to Louisiana. We've got a great attorney general candidate in Louisiana in Liz Merle. She's the current solicitor general. Um, she'd be the first woman to hold that position, first Republican woman to hold the attorney general position. And we're just really excited about her candidacy and the partnership that she and other attorneys, attorneys general like Lynn Fitch can have um, as they work to create a culture of life and to protect women and the unborn. Well, great. Well, thanks for mentioning her. But yeah. now let's go to Kentucky, where incumbent uh, pro-abortion Democrat Andy Bashir is facing a challenge from Attorney General D Daniel Cameron, who is solidly pro-life. The two mm -hmm. are pretty much neck and neck in the polls. What's, what's your prediction? I don't know if I have a prediction, but we're certainly excited about Attorney General Cameron running for the governor's office. It's been four long years under Governor Bashir, um, and I think the people of Kentucky are ready to have a governor who um, not only reflects their values, but agrees with the other politicians that they've elected. Uh, Kentucky has um, Republican majorities in the state legislature. They're passing laws and they are constantly having to override Governor Bashir's vetoes. Thankfully, they're able to do this, but we're certainly very excited about the prospect of a pro-life governor who reflects the pro-life legislature's um, will and will work in, together with them to protect lives and to um, serve women. Um, and again, uh, we've got another great attorney general candidate there. Uh, Russell Coleman is running to replace um, governor, or, sorry, speaking too soon, but attorney general Cameron. Um, and they'll be a, a fantastic duo at the top of the ticket and in those two offices working to protect uh, women and the unborn. Well, as you know, the Virginia election is critical. Do you think the Republicans have a chance of increasing their majority in the House and reclaiming control of the Senate? I certainly think so. Governor Youngkin in 2021 really laid out a strong playbook um, on leading on life. He's done so uh, in his time in the governor's office as well, championing measures like the 15-week pain-capable uh, bill in, in Virginia that would limit abortion at 15 weeks and is a reasonable and common sense restriction that 61% of Virginians do agree with. And I think we've seen a number of candidates in the Virginia um, campaign, a House campaign committee recently put out an ad um, championing that bill and, and championing it as common sense, uh, pointing out the extremism of the other side, um, referencing things like Delegate Kathy Tran introducing a bill and, and explicitly saying that it would legalize abortion through the 40th week. Um, 
you have the former governor, Ralph Northam, who we all heard talk about infanticide um, and whether or not that's a woman's choice um, after the baby is born. Um, so we have some strong examples of the Democrat extremism in Virginia, some real examples. Um, and we've seen a lot of candidates uh, on the Virginia ticket really lean into this message and, and lay out a strong platform following on Governor Youngkin's leadership. So we're really excited about his leadership. We're excited about the candidates that we've got running. And um, I certainly think that we can hold the House and flip a couple seats in the Senate this cycle if we if we continue following that model. All right. Well, great. And so finally, how important is a pro-life win for the open seat in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court? Yeah, well, this is a race that it's gotten a lot of attention recently, um, but we certainly, um, you know, would hope that Pennsylvanians would see what uh, Dan McCaffrey, the Democratic nominee, is saying and realize that's not in line with what a judicial nominee should be saying. It's not in line with a what a judicial candidate should be saying. It's not in line with what um, he would do or have the power to do at the um in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So uh, I certainly hope that the Republican candidate, Carolyn uh, Carluccio, would um, would lean into this message, would point out the extremism of her opponent's message, and would point out the extremism of the Democrats in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, recently, Governor um, Shapiro vetoed resources for women, um, vetoed those alternatives to abortion um, funding that is so critical and really does provide women that those options that she needs to be able to choose life. Um, so if, if she can point that extremism out, point out what they're doing with their control of the governorship, with their control of the state house, um, I certainly think that she can lean into that without, um, you know, uh, going beyond the bounds of what a judicial candidate is is, is normally or supposed to say, um, given what they'll be ruling on. So um, it would it would it's important. It's um, going to set us up to hopefully take back the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in a few years. Um, and we'll certainly be watching that race and uh, learning all that we can about how to how to approach these judicial races going forward. Well, Caitlin, we really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise with our viewers. And thanks so much for joining us. We hope you'll come back as Election Day gets closer. Certainly. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to talking with you guys again. All right. Thanks, Caitlin. It's important for every pro-life voter to make sure their registration is up to date and that they know all the important dates coming up. Everything you need to know about the 2023 elections, including how to get involved, can be found at ProLifeVote.com. Last week, I had the opportunity to talk with Mark Lee Dixon, the founder of Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn. Before we share that interview, I wanted to update you on new developments that occurred after our interview. The New Mexico Supreme Court will hear oral arguments regarding a request to strike down recent abortion ban ordinances in several cities and counties. The High Court on Tuesday announced it will hear arguments December 13th and agreed to consider legal briefings filed by an array of advocacy groups. The state attorney general in January petitioned the high court to strike down abortion ban ordinances approved by local governments spanning much of eastern New Mexico. Attorney General Raul Torres argued the local laws violate state constitutional guarantees, including New Mexico's Equal Rights Amendment that prohibits discrimination based on sex and or being pregnant. State abortion laws in New Mexico are among the most liberal in the country, 
but local governments in cities and counties where opposition to abortion runs deep have approved their own abortion restrictions, largely based on a 19th century U.S. law that prohibits the delivery of abortion supplies and medications. Local abortion ban ordinances dot the map from Edgewood on the outskirts of Albuquerque to Eunice near the Texas state line, also including Lee and Roosevelt counties and the cities of Hobbs and Clovis. Most have been blocked by the Supreme Court while it considers the challenge by the state's Democratic Attorney General. Here is what Mark Lee Dixon had to say regarding his work with Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn. I'm here with my friend Mark Lee Dixon from Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn. Welcome to the show, Mark. Great to be here. So tell us first a little bit about how Sanctuary Cities got started. What was the inspiration? Well, it all started when an abortion facility in Shreveport, Louisiana was looking at crossing the Texas-Louisiana border to a little city called Wascombe, Texas. And the people of Wascombe, they're known for Jim's Barbecue, David Beard's Catfish Village, East Texas Football. They don't want to be known for an abortion facility. And so it reached out to the mayor and he said to expedite them an ordinance. So put an ordinance together and Wascombe ended up passing an ordinance, became the first city in the nation to outlaw abortion. But they weren't the last. Uh, several other cities followed in their footsteps, even Lubbock, which is 11th largest city in the state of Texas, 80th largest city in the United States, and now we're up to uh, 70 political subdivisions having uh, passed ordinances throughout the United States across seven states, and uh, that's 67 cities and, and three counties, wow. and we are uh, not stopping anytime soon. Okay, well that's that's pretty amazing. So when did you start? What was the what was the year was that? It was June of 2019. Okay, so you've achieved quite a lot in a short amount of time. So what's on the horizon? What well, first before we do that, tell explain exactly what sanctuary cities are. So sanctuary cities are cities that have passed an ordinance which prohibits abortion within their city limits. Now, obviously, that looks differently in New Mexico and Illinois than it does in Texas and Nebraska. But the heart of the ordinances is the same, that we're doing everything that we can to keep abortion out of these communities. Awesome. So tell me then, what, what cities are you working on now? Can, are you allowed to share? or Sure. Okay. So right now, we're working on... Greenville County, South Carolina. We're working on uh, Snowflake, Arizona. We're working on uh, Quincy, Illinois. Amarillo, Texas. And let me tell you about Amarillo, Texas. Uh, some people may be wondering, why are you still passing ordinances mm -hmm. in Texas? Well, the work is far from over in the great state of Texas. We have abortion trafficking going on on a regular basis all throughout the great state of Texas, and we got to push back. So what Mitchell County, Texas did recently, they passed an ordinance which covers the unincorporated part of their county. And so now the roads and the runways there in Mitchell County 
abortion traffickers, if they were to use those, they could be sued into oblivion. Wow, that's awesome. So tell me, how does a city get started? Um, I mean, what if I wanted one here in Titusville where our, where our studio is, what do I do? So we always encourage people to go to the online petition and to sign that online petition. And that's found at sanctuarycitiesfortheunborn.com. Now we do that because this really is a process. Sometimes we've got just one shot at this uh, when we go forward. And so when we get enough signatures in an area um, where we feel like we're comfortable, we can move forward, uh, we do an interest meeting. So we fly out, drive out, uh, do an interest meeting at a church, and we get all those people together. Uh, we don't move forward until we have someone on that city council or county commission that's willing to sponsor an ordinance. When we have someone that's willing to sponsor, we will draft an ordinance and provide with it an attorney letter which says, uh, for my attorney, Jonathan F. Mitchell, former law clerk for Justice Scalia, was a, a former solicitor general uh, in the state of Texas. And that letter says that if that city or county is sued from the passage of that ordinance, he's willing to represent that city, that county, at no cost to city and county taxpayers for any litigation that comes as a result. And let me tell you something. The ACLU and Democracy Forward and all these groups, uh, they are paying very close attention to what cities and counties are doing. And so we wanna make sure that every city that considers this, that they've got right off the bat, strong legal representation and that that ordinance is not going to get them into a, a, a loss. Awesome, that's amazing. So what is your long-term goal? What do you see? Well, the long-term goal is to see Amer uh, an America that abortion is extinct. And Amen. so I want to see uh, from coast to coast an abortion-free America. Um, we believe that we can accomplish this. And I don't want to wait 50 years. I want to see it in a couple of years, right? Sure. Uh, because we've got a, a big world. Um, we can't just focus on America. We've got to outlaw abortion in the entire world. And then if the abortion industry starts setting up colonies and, on Mars, then we can go to Mars and start outlawing abortion there. <laughs> but we need to make sure that this universe is free from the horrible atrocity of abortion. Amen. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, please tell our audience one more time how they can help you and where to go. So you can check out the Sanctuary Cities for the Unborn initiative at sanctuarycitiesfortheunborn.com. And then if you're in a city that uh, you see that, that might not be a chance at becoming a sanctuary city anytime soon, then you can visit markleydixon.com. There's different presentations that I do encouraging uh, how you can help your city see new leadership and how the church can, through their mobilization efforts, uh, change the culture of the city and in process, save your city, save your county, save your state, and save America. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. your time. 
Five pro-life activists are in cells at the Alexandria County Jail in Virginia, awaiting sentencing after being convicted in federal court of violating the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, or FACE, for a 2020 protest inside a DC late-term abortion business. Lauren Handy, Will Goodman, Heather Iadoni, John Henshaw, and Herb Garrity face up to 11 years in prison and fines of up to $350,000 each. The district court judge who heard the case would not allow the defendants to say their protest was meant to save lives, nor were they or their lawyers able to use the word abortion. Four of the 12 jurors are abortion supporters, some of whom have donated to Planned Parenthood, so the conviction seemed like a done deal. An appeal is in the works, and Handy's lawyers have filed an emergency petition to have her released from custody while awaiting sentencing. Four additional pro-lifers will be tried in the same court beginning September 6th, with sentencing for all nine to take place at the conclusion of that trial. On Thursday, the Daily Signal reported that the Metropolitan Police in D.C. are investigating abortionist Cesar Santangelo, whose clinic the pro-lifers were protesting when arrested. It's unclear what police are looking into. House Majority Leader Stephen Scalise, a pro-life leader in Congress, has been diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of blood cancer that is very treatable. In a statement, the Louisiana Republican said he has begun treatment that will last several months and that he intends to work through it. Scalise was critically injured in 2017 when he was practicing with fellow Republicans for the annual congressional baseball game. A gunman targeting Republicans shot Scalise in the hip, causing severe internal injuries and internal bleeding. A former legislative assistant and two others also were shot before Capitol Police killed gunman James Hodgkinson. A federal judge has ruled that West Virginia can restrict the sale of the abortion pill despite federal regulators' approval of it as a safe medication. U.S. District Court Judge Robert Chambers ruled last week that a law protecting nearly all babies from abortion takes precedence over approvals from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. GenProBio, which manufactures generic mifepristone, had argued that states can't ban approval of a drug previously cleared by the FDA. Bad news for Planned Parenthood in South Carolina. The Supreme Court will not reconsider its August 23rd ruling upholding the state's heartbeat law. The abortion giant wanted the court to rule that a baby's heart doesn't start to beat until all four chambers are fully formed in the 17th to 20th week of pregnancy. Abortion enthusiasts in Ohio who have succeeded in placing a proposed constitutional amendment on the ballot in November are so upset about the wording of the the amendment that they're suing the state. In a 3-2 vote along party lines, the Ohio ballot board last week adopted Secretary of State Frank LaRose's language without any changes. One thing the pro boards don't like is the inclusion of the term unborn child. And here's one sentence they object to. The amendment would, quote, always allow an unborn child to be aborted at any stage of pregnancy, regardless of viability, if in the treating physician's determination, the abortion is necessary to protect the life or health of the mother. Pro boards don't want voters thinking about unborn babies being aborted during late stage pregnancies. They would prefer Ohioans to think abortion only takes place at the embryo stage. The pro boards want the ballot board to reconvene and adopt language that, quote, properly and lawfully describes the amendment. Michigan voters last year invented a right to abortion in their state constitution. Now Governor Gretchen Whitmer wants to rid the state of every law restricting abortion, including parental notification and a 24-hour waiting period. In her What's Next speech on Wednesday, she called on lawmakers to pass the Reproductive Health Act, which also would eliminate building code requirements for busy abortion centers. Excuse me. And two tragic stories to finish up with this week. In Sanford, Florida, police have arrested the boyfriend of a woman who was found shot to death in her car in a park last November. 19-year-old Kaylin Fiango, the mother of a one-year-old son, was nearing the end of her first trimester of pregnancy with her second baby 
Police say she had gone to the park to meet up with her boyfriend, 21-year-old Donovan Faison. The couple had fought frequently about her pregnancy, which the young woman refused to abort. Police now say that the refusal was the motive for her murder and the murder of her child. Faison has been charged with two counts of homicide and is being held without bail. And in Alabama, an 18-year-old is under arrest after she allegedly threw her newborn baby boy into a trash compactor. He was alive at the time. No one knew Jaquela Williams was pregnant or that she gave birth at home on August 13th. Ten days later, her family learned she had given birth and asked her where the baby was. She said she surrendered the newborn at a hospital, but that was discovered to be a lie. She later admitted to police that she wrapped a blanket around the boy and left him in the trash compactor of an apartment building. She reportedly said she didn't want to be a mother because babies cost too much. And that's abortion in the news. The judge on Monday set a March 4th, 2024 trial date for Donald Trump in the federal case in Washington, charging the former president with trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election, rejecting a defense request to push back the case by years. U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin rebuffed claims by Trump's attorneys that an April 2026 trial date was necessary to account for the huge volume of evidence they say they are reviewing and to prepare for what they contend is a novel and unprecedented prosecution. But she agreed to postpone the trial slightly beyond the 2024 January date proposed by special counsel Jack Smith's prosecution team. The public has a right to a prompt and efficient resolution of this matter, Chutkin said. If the current date holds, it would represent a setback to Trump's efforts to push the case back until well after the 2024 presidential election, a contest in which he's the early frontrunner for the Republican nomination. The March 2024 date would also ensure a blockbuster trial in the nation's capital in the heat of the GOP presidential nominating calendar, forcing Trump to juggle campaign and courtroom appearances and coming the day before Super Tuesday, a crucial voting day when more than a dozen states will hold primaries and when the largest number of delegates are up for grabs. The Washington case is one of four prosecutions Trump is facing. A March 4th trial would take place just weeks before a scheduled New York trial in a case charging him in connection with a hush money payment to a porn actress. Meanwhile, in Atlanta on Monday, where Trump and 18 others were charged with trying to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows argued to get, the, to get the charges against him transferred from state court to federal court. The setting of the trial date came despite strong objections from Trump's lawyer, John Lauro. He said defense lawyers had received an enormous trove of records from Smith's team. A prosecutor put the total at more than 12 million pages and files and said the case concerned novel issues that would require significant time to sort out. This is one of the most unique cases from a legal perspective ever brought in the history of the United States, ever, LaRoche said, calling it an enormous, overwhelming task to review such a gargantuan amount of evidence. Smith's team has brought a separate federal case accusing him of illegally retaining classified documents at his Palm Beach, Florida property, Mar-a-Lago, and refusing to give them back. That case is currently set for trial next May 20. Trump also faces the state cases in New York and Georgia. A spokesperson for New York's state court system, Lucian Chalfin, said Chalkin recently spoke with the judge in Trump's Manhattan criminal case, Juan Manuel Merchant, about their respective trials ahead. 
Chalfin said no decision has been made regarding postponing or rescheduling the Manhattan trial, which is to begin March 25th, 2024. Trump surrendered Thursday in the Georgia case, posing with a scowl for the first mugshot in American history of a former U.S. president. He has claimed the investigations of him are politically motivated attempts to damage his chances of winning back the White House. Despite the charges, President Trump remains strong in the polls. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez announced Tuesday he is suspending his long-shot bid for the White House after failing to gain momentum in the crowded Republican field. Suarez wrote in a post on X, formerly known as Twitter, while I have decided to suspend my campaign for president, my commitment to making this a better nation for every American remains. The Miami mayor was unable to garner meaningful support in the polls and ultimately fell short of the Republican National Committee's polling requirement to make it onto the first debate stage last week, a benchmark he previously said should be make or break for presidential campaigns. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin and his political team are devoting significant resources to gaining Republican control of the General Assembly this fall, hoping to enact a conservative agenda that would include passing new abortion legislation, according to several sources familiar with the governor's plans. Virginia is the last state in the South without significant restrictions on abortion rights, and advocates see it as the next big battleground on the issue. Sources familiar with Youngkin's plans said passing a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, with exceptions for rape, incest, and having the, saving the life of the mother, would be a legislative priority for Youngkin if his party succeeds in the November legislative elections. The governor and his campaign team believe that 15 weeks is a consensus limit, one that many Virginians across political ideologies can agree upon. And they're betting the measure is modest enough to avoid spikes in Democratic turnout, more stringent bans has triggered in other states. NBC News has learned that Youngkin and his campaign's view is informed by the all-women focus groups they conducted on abortion throughout the summer as part of GOP efforts to hold the Virginia House and win the Senate. Zach Roday, the coordinated campaign's director of Youngkin's state PAC, Spirit of Virginia, said the women's views on abortion were complicated and nuanced, but he said 15 weeks with exceptions is a place where a lot of people start nodding their head. Youngkin is eyeing a new abortion limitations as elected Democrats in the Commonwealth sound the alarm that the National Party isn't doing enough to prevent the Republican governor and his allies from winning the state Senate or from keeping their hold on the House of Delegates. And that's political news in a nutshell. Brian Kemper is the director of youth outreach and the coordinator of street activism for Priests for Life. In 1999, when he was working at another pro-life organization, he had the idea to launch a national pro-life t-shirt day. And in recent years, he brought the day back to life. In fact, expanding it to three days every year. Brian's with us tonight. Hi, Brian. Peace, how are we doing tonight? Good, good. Good, thank you, Brian. So Brian, how'd you come up with this idea? You know, it's it started with an idea because of, the first thing I did was make pro-life stickers. Uh, that was one of the first things I did. And one of the, the first sticker I ever made just said abortion is mean. And I gave it to some college students at Loris College in, in Iowa. And one of the girls put it on her notebook. And she said the she called me the next day and said that when she had her notebook sitting on her desk, the girl behind her told her, 
I was scheduled for an abortion, but I saw your sticker. Can we talk? And she ended up keeping the baby. Wow. And that was sort of my inspiration for, for doing stickers and t-shirts and stuff mm -hmm. and all of that. And so in 1999, I, I went to my then boss, Paul Brown, and asked him about doing a pro-life t-shirt day, asking students all around the country to wear this uh, pro-life t-shirt on the same day. And that's where the idea was launched from. So Brian, you pretty much are always wearing a pro-life t-shirt. Tell us about some of the conversations your shirts have sparked. You know, it, it, it goes anywhere from on an airplane to at a grocery store. There's always somebody making comments about my shirts. I was I was sitting on an airplane once and a lady came on and, and scolded me and told me that I was not part of the generation that would overturn Roe versus Wade. And sitting next to me was a United States senator. And we ended up having a conversation for two hours about abortion. And a good chunk of the airplane stayed quiet and listened to, to our conversation the whole way to Chicago. And several people came up and talked to me afterwards. It, they're just a great tool for, for starting conversations. And sometimes it just takes one of those conversations like we saw that, that can save someone's life. So Brian, when is on Pro-Life T-Shirt Day, the next one coming up? What date is it? October 3rd coming up. I'm super excited. Uh, it's it's an easy thing to do. You can wear a Pro-Life T-Shirt. And I understand some people have to wear work uniforms and such. And so sometimes they'll just wear the T-Shirt after work or they'll wear it on the weekend. It doesn't have to be that exact same date, but we just give a date for people that do want to do that. And on October 3rd, we like to see pictures come in, people text us and tag us in posts on social media of them wearing their pro-life t-shirt wherever it is they are. All right, well, Teresa and I are wearing pro-life t-shirts <laughs> and, we, and we have, because you can't see this, we have uh, Our Mother Chose Life, which is one of our, our popular ones here. And where can we, where can we, got, we get our pro-life t-shirts? Well, right now, if you want to go to standtrue.com slash shirt day, that's got the information on Pro-Life Shirt Day and link uh, right to Pro-Life products uh, here at Priest for Life where we do sell Pro-Life t-shirts. So it's uh, very easy to get. Uh, check out ProLifeProducts.com or go to standtrue.com slash Pro-Life t-shirts. Okay. Slash t-shirt day. I'm sorry. T-shirt day. All right. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for joining us and for all the work you do out there. You're always out there on the streets and you're always wearing your shirts. And I know uh, you've had a lot of great conversations over the years. So thank you. All right. Thank you so uh, much. And have a great thanks. night. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. If you like our show, please support us by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating God's people to end abortion. For all your pro-life news updates during the week, please follow us on Twitter at Pro-Life News Show. I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.